Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. on this beautiful Easter morning, and I'm excited to gather with you and and look at God's Word this morning. He is risen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Almighty God, our merciful King, Your Word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path in the midst of a dark world. Father, open our eyes, open our minds this morning by the power of your Spirit that we may understand your Word. Father, we pray that you would transform our lives and our hearts according to what we hear this morning, that our lives would be glorifying to you. Father, we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, happy Resurrection Day. Uh, And really, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. Every day we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But on on this Easter Sunday, we, we gather to focus on this, kind of set aside time to celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And I want to begin with a few stories this morning, because the truth is you can't really understand what resurrection is if you don't understand what death is, right? There's, without death, there's no resurrection. And this morning, I want to begin by focusing on death. Do you think about death often? Do you think that you will die someday? And as we think about that this morning, I want to tell you some stories of some people who died. Now, these are not just any random stories, but stories of of martyrs. Now, a martyr is someone who voluntarily suffers death as the penalty of witnessing to and refusing to renounce their religion. And these stories that I want to share with you this morning are historical accounts of some of what our brothers and sisters have endured for the glory of God throughout the ages for the sake of Christ and the spread of his gospel. Now, the first one is the Apostle Peter. Church tradition tells us that the Apostle Peter was sentenced to be crucified, like Christ prophesied in the book of John. However, Peter, so humbled by his Savior, felt he was not worthy to be killed in the same manner as Jesus, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. Church tradition tells us that that's how he was crucified, upside down. There's another man named Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. The Martyrdom of Polycarp, a book written in the second century, tells the story of his execution. And here's what it says. The proconsul, the the Roman official, urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. In other words, renounce your faith in Christ. Polycarp answered this, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul then threatened him. 
I have wild beasts ready, and I will throw you to them if you do not change your mind. Polycarp said, let them come, for my purpose is unchangeable. And then the proconsul said this, if the wild beasts don't scare you, then I will burn you with fire. Polycarp responded, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you wait? Bring forth what you will. When they were about to nail him to the stake to be burned, Polycarp said, leave me as I am. He who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to remain still within the fire. You understand what he's doing. Normally they would strap you or nail you to the stake so you couldn't get off the stake. He says, you don't even need to do that. I'll stand here. Christ will give me strength. They agreed to do this and simply tied his hands behind his back. In his final prayer, he prayed this. Oh, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have called me to this day and this hour and have counted me worthy to receive my place among the number of the holy martyrs. Amen. As soon as he uttered the word amen, the officers lit the fire. The flames rose high above his body, but miraculously he was not burned. Those who watched said he was in the midst of the fire, not as burning flesh, but as gold and silver refined in a furnace. And we smelled such a sweet aroma as of incense or some other precious spice. Since the fire did not hurt him, the executioner was ordered to stab him with a sword. As soon as he did, so much blood flowed from his wound that it put out the fire. He bled to death. Story of Polycarp. The last one is a story of Jerome of Prague. He was an early reformer in the 15th century. And in going to the place of his execution, it was noted that he was singing several hymns. And when he came to the spot, which was the same spot where Jan Hus had been buried, burnt, he knelt down and prayed fervently. He embraced the stake with great cheerfulness. And when they went behind him to set the fire, to set fire to the wood, he said, Come here and kindle it before my eyes. For if I had been afraid of it, I would not have come to this place. The fire being kindled, he sang a hymn, but was soon interrupted by the flames. And the last words he was heard to say was this, This soul in flames, I offer Christ to thee. Now I want to compare that to the story of the night before Jesus' execution. You see, because his story is a bit different. The night before Jesus' crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, he came to pray. And Luke twenty-two thirty-nine 39 says this. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he had come to the, this place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So my question is this. Why was Jesus in so much agony over what would happen the next day? 
when these other martyrs went to their deaths cheerfully, singing, praising God? What was so different? What, what was this cup that he wanted taken away? What was in the cup? You, you see, when we compare Jesus' death to the death of thousands of martyrs throughout history, there must have been something different. These, these martyrs who were just men went to their deaths triumphantly, singing. Were they more courageous in Christ? No, it can't be that. Well, what was it then? It, he must have been facing something different, something more horrifying than just death. And our answer is found in this question, what was in the cup? What had Jesus so agonized that he sweat as drops of blood? The answer is found in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And the answer is this. Jesus was not agonized about his death. I mean, sure, there's probably something to that. But what Jesus was in agony over was facing the wrath of God on the cross. In Jeremiah 25, 15, again, where we find this language of the cup. And here's what it says. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Psalm 75, 8 similarly says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. See, the Old Testament imagery of the cup is that God has wrath, and he pours it out against the wicked. Jesus knew that he would face that on the cross, and that's what had him in agony. See, the Old Testament speaks of God's wrath often. Over 20 different words are used to describe God's wrath, and his wrath is mentioned over 580 times in the Old Testament. And the wrath of God is God's righteous anger against a sinful humanity have rejected him. You see, we were created to worship and enjoy God, but we have gone astray, the scripture tells us. You've heard that language in Isaiah 53 that we read this morning. We've turned our back on God, and God's wrath rightfully burns against our sin. So I want to focus on that at the beginning this morning, because without understanding God's wrath, we cannot understand the crucifixion. And if we can't understand the crucifixion, we can't understand the resurrection. Listen to how, if you have your Bibles, you can turn here with me. We're going to be reading some quotes from the Old Testament. The first one's out of Isaiah 30, verses 27 through 33. Isaiah 30, verses 27 through 33. Listen to the way the scriptures describe God. And I want to ask you as well this morning, does this fit your picture of God? Is your picture of God one that can fit what the scriptures describe him as? Or have you created a God in your own image? one that is suitable to your liking. Here's what it says in Isaiah 30, verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke his lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the people 
bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with his brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. It's a striking picture. Next, I want to look at Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Listen to how again the scriptures describe God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Does this fit your picture of God? Or have you made God in your own image? Psalm 11, verse 4. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. The The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord speaks, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end will he make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The last one is from Ezekiel. One verse 
says this, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. He says this, The soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. Now you see what the Scriptures teach us is that all of us outside of Christ stand in the way of God's wrath. Left on our own, this is what we deserve. We are guilty before God. And, and in light of those readings, you may say, whoa, 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 but, that, but that's the Old Testament. That's not how the New Testament talks, right? Doesn't Jesus like change all that kind of stuff? No. Sometimes we have this mistaken idea that, that God the Father, the Old Testament, that's the angry one. But Jesus is kind of, you know, like a gentle, loving, hippie version of God. But that's not what the scriptures teach. The triune God is wrathful against sinners, and there is no division in his essence. Listen to how the New Testament describes the return of Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 1. For the wrath of God, there's that word again, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Then this terrifying sentence, so they are without excuse. That's speaking of humanity. We are without excuse. Listen to what he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's New Testament. He wrote that after Christ. There is no excuse. Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Now again, this is speaking of Christ. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And he says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see what Paul's saying? It's the Lord Jesus who will inflict vengeance when he returns. There's no difference between the Old Testament and New Testament picture of God. And then this, and this is the last quotation here. Revelation chapter 6. Listen to how this describes that same day. This is a striking, terrifying image. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free. So everyone, 
Listen to what they did. Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It's the same question we saw in the Old Testament. Who can stand before the wrath of God? Hear those words. Save us from the wrath of the Lamb. They're calling to the mountains. Please collapse on us. We don't want to face Jesus. It's a striking image and a striking phrase. And again, I would ask you, is this something that your picture of God can fit into it? If not, you may have created a God in your own image after your own liking. You see, these, these words totally ruin our idea of, of a, a, you know, wouldn't harm a butterfly kind of gumdrops and candy cane Jesus. That, that is not the biblical Jesus. You see, this picture the Bible gives of humanity, this is, the, this is us. All of us, no, no one's exempt. We are sinners, rebels by nature, by choice, by words, by thoughts, by deeds. Essentially, when we sin, we, we've given God the proverbial middle finger, saying, I'm going to do my own thing. And if we don't understand this, if, if we don't see ourselves this way, the Bible says we are deceived. You see, because one day we will, we will all die. And, and when we die, we will not stand before a mirror. We will not judge ourselves. We will stand before the throne of God who describes himself as a consuming fire. There's no negotiation to take place on that day. You don't get to give a defense. And God has already said that you are without excuse anyway. Your condemnation would be just. You see, in and of ourselves, we stand rightly condemned before God in our sin. Have you ever thought about that? You see, sometimes I hear people say things like, And we've all thought things like this. If God is good, why do bad things happen? Or, you know, if God is good, how can he send people to hell? And I understand the thought process that gets there. I've thought that before. But the more that you you soak yourself in the scriptures, you have to understand that the Bible doesn't have that tension. The Bible doesn't ask that question. There is a tension in scripture and there is a question that's floating throughout, but it's a different question. The question in scripture is, If God is good, how can anyone be saved? You see this tension in the Old Testament. If if God is holy and just, how can he pardon sinners? How can people who deserve judgment escape it? That seems unjust. How can God give us anything besides justice and, and, and still be good? That's the question, that the, the tension that is in the scriptures. And I'm afraid that if, if that's not the question we're asking, we have a wrong picture of God. And so we stand condemned. This is the problem. This is, this is our problem. We stand sinful before a holy God. And like the scriptures say, who can stand? The answer is no one. But there's a solution provided by God himself. And this is the cross. The cross is the solution to all of our questions. The cross is the solution to how can God be just on one hand and yet pardon sinners on the other? In the cross, we see the answer. 
You see, this is, this is the glory of the cross and of the resurrection. And this is why it's so important for us to understand the wrath of God. Because if, if we try to understand the cross without understanding the holiness of God, without understanding the wrath of God, without understanding the darkness of sin, the cross really isn't necessary. We, we can't appreciate it nor understand it. It's like the, the stars at night, right? When you go out now, okay, we live in Southern California, but imagine you're camping and you go out and you look up and you just see all of the stars and you stand, especially for Southern California, you just stand in amazement and just think, wow. But if you went out in the middle of the day, you would look up and you would see no stars, but they haven't gone anywhere. Those stars are still there. The only reason we can't see them is because of the light of the sun. In, in the same way, the crucifixion shines brightest against the blackness of sin. If we don't understand the blackness and the evil of sin, if we don't understand the righteous wrath of God, there's not much to see in the crucifixion. It's kind of like, okay, that's nice. But when we see the blackness of sin, when we feel God's condemnation on us, when we understand our sin then the cross is glorious to us because it shines brightly in the darkness. Theologian Daniel Fuller says it this way, God delights far more in His mercy than in His wrath, so in order to show the priority of His mercy, He must place it against the backdrop of His wrath. How could God's mercy appear fully as His great mercy unless it was extended to a people who were under, under His wrath and therefore could only ask for mercy. It would be impossible for them to share with God the delight he has in mercy, unless they saw clearly the awfulness of the almighty wrath from which his mercy delivers them. You see, the cross is, is only beautiful with the backdrop of our guilt and condemnation. This is why Paul in, in Romans spends the first three chapters condemning all of humanity. Without understanding the bad news, we can't understand the good news. Without condemnation, there's no need for salvation. If you don't understand that you deserve judgment and wrath, you will never understand why we call the grace and love of God amazing. It will just be expected. And so in Romans, Paul spends three chapters building the case against humanity. All the Jews are condemned, all the Gentiles are condemned, Everyone stands guilty before God. We're all dead meat, condemned, damned. You, me, everyone deserves condemnation. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And this isn't just Paul having a bad day. This is Paul understanding the Old Testament, all those verses that we read. But then, but then he makes a turn. In Romans chapter 3, a turn happens because the cross enters into the picture. Let's look at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. And you'll see this. This is the glory of the cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He says this, But now, so yes, everyone's under condemnation, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the, the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the answer to the problem. And the key word here is propitiation. Your Bible might say sacrifice of atonement. But, but as we seek to understand this, the cross, and as we seek to understand that, we must understand this word propitiation. Because a propitiation explains where God's wrath and mercy meet. Propitiation simply means that Jesus bore God's righteous wrath for us, thereby securing a way for God to express His love justly. We sang this in the song, In Christ Alone. The words say, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. The wrath of God was satisfied. You see, because God can't just excuse sin. If He did, He wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be just, right? We, we understand this. If there was a human judge who just... Every case that came to me just said, no, you know what? We forgive you. Oh, you murdered your whole family? We forgive you. No, we would righteously be angry. How can you forgive this? There needs to be a penalty. And in God, it's the same way. He can't just excuse sin. That would be unjust. We would never want this in a judge. A God without wrath is a God without love. You see, God's wrath against sin is an expression of his love. Think about it this way. Think of the person whom you love the most in the entire world. Now think about the feeling you would have towards anything or anyone that would harm them or try to ruin them. That's wrath. That, that's what God's wrath is. It's, it's his righteous anger against the things that have ruined his people. The things that have rebelled against him, who have defamed, who have called a liar by our lifestyles. God would not be good if he did not hate sin. Theologian John Murray puts it this way. He explains how, how God's love and wrath work together. Listen to what he says. Propitiation is not a turning of the wrath of God into love. So God didn't go from being wrathful to loving. No. It is one thing, he continues, it is one thing to say that the wrath of God is made loving. That would be entirely false. It is another thing to say that the wrathful God is loving. That is profoundly true. But it is also true that the wrath by which he is wrathful is propitiated through the cross. This propitiation is the fruit of the divine love that provided it. He quotes 1 John 4.10, Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation, the cross, is the demonstration of God's love. He continues, the propitiation is the ground, the basis upon which the divine love operates and the channel through which it flows to achieving its end. We cannot understand or appreciate how God views us in Christ 
and his love for us if we don't understand how God views us before we are in Christ. This is why we must learn. This is that the cross will never be dear to us until we understand what we would be without God's grace. God's love will never be precious to us until we understand his righteous wrath. We have to understand that God's love and wrath are compatible. And we don't have to choose between a loving God who excuses sin and a wrathful God who doesn't love. God's wrath is necessary for his love. God is love. God is wrathful. Scripture teaches both of these things. You see, without an understanding of our condition before God, His righteous wrath, His anger towards us, the cross is meaningless. The cross is meaningless. This is what Romans 3, 21 through 26 reveal to us, that there is another way. Another way. Wrath and judgment doesn't have to be our condition. You're starting to see why God's wrath and our sin is so important because we deserve judgment. But Paul says in Romans 3, but now there is another way because the same God whose wrath flowed to all mankind has now sent his son. It's the same God. But now those who trust in Christ live in light of this truth, the death and resurrection of Christ. God's love has been manifested to all of humanity. It has been shown to us through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And we start to see why the cross had to be so full of suffering. Because God takes sin seriously. On the cross, the fullness of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And for the only time in his life, Jesus experienced the condemnation from his father. God's anger burned against Christ and was poured out on him. Scripture says he bore our sin. All of this took place on the cross. You see, the physical suffering of the cross was only a minute part of that. The horror of the cross is the wrath of God being poured out on Christ. And that's why he was sweating drops of blood in the garden. It's not the physical suffering that he was in anguish over. It was the thought of bearing God's wrath. Of feeling the glare of God's anger. Remember what he cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake him? Why did God turn away from his own son, from the spotless, sinless son of God? Because God has no place with sinners. And on that cross, Jesus became a sinful man. The sins of his people were put on him. God the Father looked upon Jesus hanging on the cross, and he saw all of our sin. He saw in Jesus a lying, thieving, blasphemous, perverted, murderous, God-hating man. For the only time in his life, Jesus was cut off with his communion from the Father experiencing the fullness of God's righteous and wrath and judgment upon him. The only perfect man to have ever walked the earth bore the wrath of God. All, all of those things that we read in the Old Testament were poured out onto him. And because God's righteous wrath was satisfied, that's what propitiation means, because it was satisfied in Jesus now God, rightfully, 
and justly pours out his unending love on those who come to Christ in faith. And, and the resurrection, and, and here's, here's where it comes to Easter, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the work of Christ. So anyone can die, right? Anyone can say all these things and then go and die. That doesn't prove anything. But only the spotless, sinless Son of God could rise from the dead. That was God's stamp of approval that this was satisfied. Judgment was satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. You could spend the rest of your life trying to understand the weight of what that verse just said and you would never even come close. He made Christ... God, the sinless Son of God, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. John 3.16 says the same thing in different words. For God so loved the world. In other words, this is how God displayed His love for the world. That He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So all those words that we read of God's wrath in the Old Testament are true. And God's love is also true, and it's on display in Christ. And it's important to remember that the the way we are linked to all of this, the way that we go from being under wrath to, to being under grace and love, is through faith in Christ. Trust in Christ. Not not everyone grabs a hold of this gift. Only those who trust fully in Jesus. It's not about the amount of good things we can do or the amount of penance that we can rack up. Only through the gift of God's grace are we saved. And Paul tells us here in Romans 3 that if we have faith in Christ, if your trust is in Christ, you receive these benefits. You receive justification. Because what Jesus did for you on the cross, you are declared right with God. He said, it is finished, and you will be treated as such by God. It's not that you are made perfect, otherwise we wouldn't sin anymore, but that you are declared perfect based on the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus' righteousness and his perfect life is now imputed to you, credited to your account. So when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees Christ's righteousness. Colossians says he canceled the record of your debt. You have nothing left to pay if you are in Christ. We have redemption, it says. Jesus paid the price to set us free from sin and slavery to death. He bought us with his own life. In the same way that God liberated the Israelites from Egypt and brought them out of slavery, he brought you out of slavery to sin and death through his blood. He paid all of it. You see, because of sin, we were indebted to God and cannot pay. He paid it in full. Colossians says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We have propitiation. Again, Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. Isaiah 53 said it pleased God to crush him. 
He was our substitute. His death satisfied God's wrath so that God could be just and the justifier of the wicked. Galatians says he became a curse for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians again says that he became sin for us on the cross. Every disgusting, vile thing that you and I have ever done, he took the punishment and bore the penalty in his body on the tree. Those who are in Christ have no wrath left to endure. None. That is his gift to us. We are free, guiltless, shameless before the throne of Almighty God, which we can now approach in confidence, Hebrews teaches. By faith in Jesus, you are inseparably united to all of these benefits because you are inseparably united to Christ Himself. That's why the Bible says that when we are saved, we are in Christ and that Christ is in us because we are one with Christ. One with Him. Where we were once set to endure wrath, condemnation, slavery to sin and hell, because of Christ, we now take joy and righteousness, justification, freedom, and adoption into God's family. So let us live in light of this truth. This is the glory of the resurrection. Death has been defeated That's why those martyrs could go to their death singing hymns and saying, oh, there's fire? No, 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 don't build it back there. Build it right here. I want to see it. It's the glory. Death has been defeated. Christ is risen from the dead. There's nothing to fear. The Bible says, what what can man do to you? God, God, God is on your side. This is what gave them the courage. So let us live in light of this. Let us view the resurrection in the shadow of the cross. Everything we need has been given to us. Let us go to the cross daily and obtain mercy from God. So take this to heart, Christian. Believe it. You have received these things by faith as a gift by the grace of God. It's through nothing that you can do. Let us seek the Lord in prayer and study of his word, knowing that he looks upon us as perfect and we are precious in his sight And nothing we could ever do would move us from the loving gaze of God. That is our fuel. We now have freedom to pursue God without fear of screwing it up. He has secured that for us. God is not disappointed with us. Sing sing with joy to him now. Let, Let the truth of the cross transform you, humble you, and grow you. Christian, I offer this quote by John Piper to you. Listen to what he says. The world will bring its condemnation. They may even put their sword behind it. But we know that the highest court has already ruled in our favor. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one successfully. If they reject us, he accepts us. If they hate us, he loves us. If they imprison us, he sets our spirits free. If they afflict us, he refines us in the fire. If they kill us, he makes it a passage to paradise. They cannot defeat us. Christ has died. Christ has risen. We are alive in him, and in him there is no condemnation. We are forgiven. We are righteous, and the righteous are as bold as a lion. Amen? Amen. That is your Benefit as a Christian. 
But the non-Christian, the non-believer, there's truth for you to see here too. The truth, what we have seen in the scriptures, says that you are storing up God's wrath for yourself. See, if your faith is not in Christ, you stand condemned. All of the words of wrath and anger that we read from the scriptures are true of you this morning. You are in the path and judgment of almighty, all-seeing God. Scripture says that you are on the road to destruction. And I tell you that not out of some form of judgment. It's not my words, it's the scriptures. I don't want your blood on my hands because the thing is, this doesn't have to be true of you. You've seen this morning the good news of Christ Jesus. And he calls you now to turn and put your faith in him. He's provided the way of salvation. And it's free. Trust and believe in Jesus. The only other option is condemnation. So the call this morning is to take refuge in Christ. Look to him. Cry out to him. He offers you salvation freely. He offers to wipe away your record of debt against him. If you have no faith, pray for it. God will answer. He will not refuse anyone who comes to him. So what are you waiting for? Why would you die in your sins? Repent and turn to Christ and see his glory. Don't let one more day go by which you are trusting in yourself. I want to close with these words from the book of Zephaniah. It speaks of the end of days when God will restore all things. Now, one of the quotes I read earlier was from Zephaniah chapter 1, and it spoke heavily of the wrath of God. But listen to how Zephaniah ends his book in chapter 3. He says this, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. This is my favorite line here. He will exult over you with loud singing. God will sing over you because of his joy. The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are the fulfillment and the proof of God's love. Believe that this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are God Almighty. Father, we've, we've merely touched on the, these truths this morning. Who can comprehend the depth of everything that you are and have done for us? We surely can't. But Father, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would make these words powerful in our lives. Give us more faith in Christ. Let us see the glory of the resurrection in higher and newer light this morning. Let us rejoice this morning with singing that you are a God who is mighty to save. That you delight in saving your people. Father, bring us 
again to see that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.